you know, one of the things we don't often uh, are made conscious of is many of the religious beliefs we have comes prepackaged within philosophical categories of understanding because the, the theologians that first wrote and started communicating ideas just after Christ, they, they tried to communicate with their community and their culture, and so they used the categories of understanding which were the Platonic Hellenistic Greek philosophies, um, which is what we should do. We should find language within our culture to connect truths to where they are. And so they use these Hellenistic ideas to communicate some of the concepts within the gospel, within the scriptures, in, in what they encountered in Christ. But what happened over the past few thousand years is that many of the philosophical categories of understanding have advanced, have grown, have, have matured. Some of the things they believe have been proven wrong. Now, um, Copernicus was the first guy who said, maybe the earth is not the stable center in the middle of the universe. I think actually we are moving around the sun and that destabilized the whole community. What do you mean we're moving? <laughs> we, wa we want to be stable. We, we want to be the center. And, and he, his book that he wrote, he used the word revolution simply to describe the circular movements of planets and, and the sun, etc. But that word revolution also became a way of describing a totally new way of thinking which is a revolutionary way of thinking, something that takes us beyond our stable categories and certainties and introduces us to a more dynamic, moving way of thinking. And so um, I want to show you some of the ideas, begin with some of the philosophical ideas, show how they've impacted our ideas about God and ourselves without us even knowing, and then offer you some alternative ways of thinking about those same things. <clears throat> so Plato and Aristotle, when they started trying to think what is the nature of reality, they made two big categories. The one category was um, the physical and that, that's a category that's easy to understand. There's, there's particles um, particles atoms and, and they interrelate and they act with one another according to very predictable laws. Um, and Newton came along and he introduced us to the laws of gravity and the laws of momentum and all those things. And it works well here because it's predictable. 
and it's something we can see and handle. But Aristotle and Plato also had another category, um, which they said was completely separate from the physical. And it's kind of, it was in their philosophy, this was mind-like qualities. So things like experience, um, things like freedom, Uh, things like ideas, uh, those things don't interact very easily with these things because here we have laws. We don't have freedom. We've got laws that tell us how things act. But, but how do we describe our experience of freedom with laws? They found that very difficult, and so they made it two different categories of understanding. They say these two things don't mix. Um, now, Plato loved this world of ideas because the world of ideas, in that world, he found the stability and the permanence that he yearned for. This physical world was continually changing. This physical world was the world of time. Okay, so let's put that in the eternity. It was the world in which you couldn't put your foot into the same river twice because it, it's moving. And so he was seeking for something more permanent and he found it in this world of ideas. And he he started developing these two categories in such a way that they were the opposite of one another. So eternity for Plato was the opposite of time. In time, things decay. In eternity, they stay the same. In time, things are constantly moving. In eternity, it is changeless. But what very often happens when, uh, in fact, Plato took it so far that he said this world of ideas, this world of forms and mind-like qualities, it is more real than the physical world. Does that sound kind of familiar? It's like in our Christianese language, would we also... We would put spirit here. It is kind of our language for speaking about the stuff that's not physical. Um, it's our language for speaking about the stuff that um, doesn't work according to laws, works according to revelation, those kind of things. Now for Plato, this world became so amazing and real, that he started describing our physical world as something inferior. He described this world as the world of shadows. Everything here is just an inferior copy of something that is much more real and beautiful in the world of ideas and thoughts. Now, though the implications of that theology was huge because when the theologians took hold of this 
I started speaking about God in terms of these categories of changeless eternity, this category that's so real. But the problem that started occurring in philosophy is they didn't know how to make these two categories talk to one another. How does spirit or ideas of freedom, how does it interact with our real world? What does this have to do with the way I live? So it became a real problem within philosophy. And uh, I want to introduce you, that's kind of just the background story. I want to introduce you to a new way of thinking about reality that's going to change those categories into something very new. This way of thinking has been around even since before Plato. I think it was Heraclitus who spoke and said, everything flows. So when he started speaking about the nature of reality, he said there's nothing like stable particles. <laughs> um, even today, people still go to school and they get the diagram that shows us what the atom looks like. That has been proven wrong in the 1940s already. There's no such thing as a nucleus with other things floating around it. What they found is it's actually dynamic waves of possibility that only becomes real in relationship with other things. So they they started realizing even from physical science that we like to describe reality as things, that reality is actually better described as events than things. When you walk into a room or into a new restaurant or to a place, before you actually work out the language and form concepts of what you experience, there's a feeling. Very quickly you have a feeling of, am I comfortable or not? Do I like this or don't? Do I want to stay here or do I want to leave? There's, there's something that is more natural to us than just cognitive, rational evaluations. There's this feeling motion. Now, Heraclitus is part of a very long tradition that speaks of reality not in terms of things, but in terms of events, in terms of movements. And I want to introduce you to a person called Alfred North Whitehead, who took these ideas and started uh, defining them in such a way that it caused another revolution as to how we understand ourselves, understand God, understand meaning. So when Alfred North Whitehead in the, I think it was the early 1940s when he started with this work, what was the problem in his day is science was busy with this. They had no interest in this. And philosophy was busy with the mind-like stuff, and they had no interest in, in, in that. It was still two categories. 
these two categories is material determinism, which is still real today. There's many people that think all there is is material. Freedom is an illusion. The fact that you think you chose to have a cup of coffee instead of tea is just an illusion. It's all been predetermined by the chemical reactions within your brain. It's you all just driven by natural laws. So that's material determinism. And in this category, what philosophers and theologians were struggling with is what they call substance metaphysics. And what that means is they acknowledge that there was something material that's real, that there's substance, but they also said there's something else mind-like, spirit-like qualities, that is also a substance that's also real. But they were so separated from one another that they didn't know how we could talk to one another. Uh, and when, we, when we're busy with amazing truths, you want to speak to people where they act. You want to actually have a conversation. Truth includes all truth. It doesn't just include your philosophical or your theological truth. It includes scientific truth as well. And so, um, basically, the pressure at that stage was philosophers and theologians need to get with the program and rework their thinking to acknowledge that this is all there is and work out what you want to say in those categories. And the philosophers and the theologians stuck to their place and said, no, this is very real. We, we can't quite tell you how it interacts with the physical things, but we know this is real. And Alfred North White, he came along and he said, there's one reality. There's not, there's not two realities. There's reality is one. And I'm not just going to rethink the nature of mind-like qualities. I'm going to rethink the nature of what the physical is. And I'm going to do it by staying with practical experience. I'm not going to drift off into the world of ideas. We've seen it often with people. Where we've ministered in so many places and people get so spiritually minded or they find such promise in the world of ideas that they become disappointed with the world they in. And why we are passionate about this is this world that you're in, this experience that you're having right here and now, if your eyes can only be open to see that God is in all, that beauty is manifesting itself, not just in a world of ideas, but in a barbecue, in a bride, in, a, in the next person you meet, in the next coffee you drink, God is waiting to be discovered there, not in a world of ideas. And so, White was saying, I'm going to stay with the experience and I'm going to develop these principles, these ideas for us to find clarity and words to describe reality in a way that people can speak to one another from both these sides 
but I'm, I'm not buying into this dualistic way of thinking that there's two realities that don't meet. And so I'm going to go through a few categories. We'll see how far we get today. But one of the first things he started describing is experience. Now, it's easy for us to understand what we mean by human experience because all of us are experiencing subjects. And Descartes, who was a famous substance metaphysical uh, uh, philosopher, he famously said that only humans have experience. Nothing else have experience. I don't know if any of you have animals or dogs. Or yes. Has your dog ever had an experience? Of course. Most people who actually have animals work with them would say, no, I think the card missed it. Um, animals have experiences as well. But how far down can we push the concept of experience? Whitey basically said any entity that has both an internal and external reality where a decision has to be made about possibilities of what they want and what they don't want to do is an experiencing entity. Now, lately, people who work, they've pushed that category down. They've proven dolphins have experiences. They've proven that, that insects, bees, experience their environment and makes decisions about what to do in their environment. They've proven that the cells in your body have individual decision-making capacities to decide what do I allow in, what don't I, how do I work with this. So why they took this down as far as you can go down and said even on a microscopic level, this was happening before quantum physics came around and validated all of this. But he said on a microscopic level, the very nature of reality is that there's always more than one possibility to be realized. And when quantum physics came along, Heisenberg actually, it's the Heisenberg principle of, of uncertainty that says no matter how much information you have about what influence you're going to exert on a photon or, or a microscopic entity, you cannot predict with certainty how it will react. Now, this was a shocking revelation because in this world of laws, they basically said all we need is all the information and we can say with certainty how the thing is going to react. Heisenberg came along and said, you can have all the information you need. Um, this dimension of possibility that cannot be reduced to certainty. This possibility that cannot be reduced to certainty. And so what he did in taking this further is he started saying that even on the level of a photon, 
he sees an experiencing entity. We have Phantom, which received the influences of its external world, everything that is bearing upon it. But even that does not predict with certainty where it will go. There is a the very nature of reality means that there is a field of possibility and which possibilities are eliminated and which are chosen is an internal decision-making capacity that is present in all material reality. So this is not two categories. The physical stuff you see around it has built into it the freedom to choose possibilities and to realize its own fulfillment. Now, this changes everything. So we've now spoken about what do we mean by experience, but now I want to say what do, how do we experience meaning? <laughs> Because now the experience of meaning is not something that just happens on a conscious level. The experience of meaning happens on every level. Now when those little molecules come together and they form a, a cell, that is also an entity that has its own freedom to make certain decisions, a self-experiencing entity. That cell becomes part of the organ that has the capacity to make decisions about what possibilities to realize. And that becomes part of your body. So experience permeates all of reality. And why you could explain it like this, that... I don't know why I want to use just the microscopic level now because I want to get to your consciousness. We'll get there. But can you stay with me even on the microscopic level? Yes. All of reality is made of drops of experience. That is kind of like it's word. That everything you see is drops of experience. Now, if you look at how, you know, even the life as we have it, the elements that's necessary to produce life, the heavier elements like carbon and heavier metals, those, those um, elements weren't present in the early universe. You know that, that uh, as they kind of worked out how the Big Bang happened, it began with very simple hydrogen gases that floated in this universe for billions of years before there were stars or planets. That eventually, so it doesn't have the actual material in it to produce life. Those atoms had to come, come together to form stars, and it's only after baking in stars for millions of years, exploding, that they produce the carbon and the heavier metals that's necessary to sustain life. So that burst our planets form. So when we look at a carbon element, it tells us a story. It tells us a story that this element could only have begun within the intense heat of the sun. 
there's a story. Let me make it more practical. When, when I look at the fossilized uh, tree stuff and I see the rings there, it tells me a story. So there's a narrative capacity within all of reality. Today you had a walk. You saw flowers, you saw insects, you saw birds. It tells a story of an enormous, beautiful process of co-creativity, where insects work together with the plants, where certain possibilities were presented to them. They chose some, rejected others, and that's why the one bird has got the long beak and the other one doesn't, because it chose the opportunity that the other didn't. So there's a narrative capacity within all reality. So this is what Whitehead basically did. He said, reality is one. Now, certainly it has two aspects to it. It has a physical and a mind-like aspect to it. But it's not separate. See, when we start speaking about human consciousness now, this has enormous implications because... For the materialists, they basically say human consciousness is just a very odd accident. We don't know why it happened, um, but it's an odd accident and it's going to pass away. When we speak to the substance dualist, they would say, no, this is mind-like qualities. is more real than material things. They're, there was a mind even before there was material things. And, and obviously in Christian theology, they would say it was the mind of God in the beginning and he out of nothing created everything. We're going to question that as well. <laughs> this view basically says the existence of material stuff and the existence of human consciousness is both amazingly, mysteriously wonderful. Mm. Because they began together. See, in this world, these things can exist apart. In this world, they exist together. Your material existence and your mind-like existence is, is a beautiful union.
So I've spoken about experience. The next thing I want to speak about is consciousness. And consciousness follows from this new definition of experience because for the materialist, it's difficult to explain how consciousness suddenly emerges within humans if it's nowhere else in nature. Where does it come from? But if experience is part of the very fabric of reality, then the whole universe is, uh, is pregnant with wanting to manifest consciousness. <laughs> wanting to, what happens now, it changes the question. We no longer ask where the consciousness comes from. Rather, we ask, how does information processing differ within human consciousness than in anything else? Because if I look at the, the little slug in this sea, I know that he's processing information unconsciously. He doesn't know, he doesn't think about him doing it. He just walks around, he feels, he feels the constituents of the water. He feels the um, closeness of other animals. Billy often takes one slug and puts it next to another slug and that other slug just runs away. Because <laughs> the other one knows this one can eat me. He just feels it. So unconscious information processing happens everywhere. And now consciousness becomes this beautiful accumulation of experience that needs to find a new kind of expression. So what is different about human consciousness? Remember we said there's a narrative capacity. Narrative is in Afrikaans, this story for tell, it's for telling. There's a, there's a capacity to tell your story within all of nature. Now, in human consciousness, one of the unique things that happens is we are able to connect events further back and further forward. Our perspective is broadened. We have a, a perspective of time that most other animals don't have. We, we look at where we've come from. We rethink how we've done things. We're the only animals that really have regrets. And we're the only animals that really have a level of anticipation that exceeds just my next meal or my next satisfaction. There's a, there's a much further trajectory to our narrative capacity. Now, the people who study the neurologists that would study the mind would tell you that most of your information processing also happens unconsciously. So consciousness is not there to just process information. It is there for a very specific reason. One of the neurologists um, we're reading he actually shows how all the neurons and all these things that happens within people who have brains and animals that have brains 
the purpose of those neurons is not to produce something new, but to restrict the flow of information. <laughs> because there's too much information, and consciousness is actually a concentration on a very small amount of information. That's why even right now your eyes, are, your mind is capable and your eyes are capable of taking in everything with exactly the same high definition information. But what happens is you focus in the area and it gives that to you in full definition and everything else blurs because it's not important enough. It doesn't want to overload you with information you don't need. All you need to know is if there's a movement. Okay, there's a movement. I can see that. But the rest is blurred because the, the, the purpose of cons consciousness is let's restrict the information so that there's just a little bit that you need to deal with. That restriction in information means that you now have two different ways of processing experience. And many people who wrote about the conscious and the unconscious speaks of it as two different languages. Every experience you have gets inscribed twice. Once in the unconscious, once in the conscious. And what does that do for us? it opens up a dimension of an internal conversation or a, or a complexity that is not present in other forms of information processing as well. And a mover doesn't contemplate what caused this environment to be this way and dream of the day where he's going to bring to his life and his mm -hmm. environment. He's just present in that moment eating what he can eat. But human consciousness and unconsciousness has this depth of complexity where I can start conversing, thinking. Now, hmm, before I go to the other things, maybe I must just quickly touch on what this means for God so that I can get excited about where we're going tomorrow. <laughs> but you see, if, if we start... Oh, if we start appreciating that this life, this experience that we partake of is full to the brim with God himself. That God is not an entity, a mind out there somewhere. Um enforcing his will or his designs upon creatures of dreams that he dreamed of. But if we start appreciating that God is the possibility in every moment, the possibility in every experience, because in every moment there's a range of possibilities of how you can experience that moment. And the, some of it is beautiful and some of it not. 
And those beautiful possibilities of experience, that is the way in which God functions in this system. He's not the God behind us, forcing us in a path, but the God in front of us with possibilities. So in which ones do you want to participate with me in actualizing, making real within your existence? And that, you know, when that comes to how we understand consciousness, how we understand the way we make meaning. I know that one of the goals that we had for the weekend was a new way of understanding scripture. Well, when we understand that we are part of the process that creates meaning, it changes everything. We're not busy with a God who wrote his whole truth in a book and said, you better study it and get it right. We're busy with a God that says, let's tell a story. And I want you to author this story with me. Maybe to give another way of understanding scripture as well. You know, just like language, the laws of grammar allows us to understand one another. The reason you can't understand me now is because we both, we have all agreed to use the same laws of language, the same grammar to understand one another. But within those laws, I am free to say things that has never been said before. Do you understand that? You can tell a story that's never been told before within the laws of language. So they're not just there for restriction. And maybe maybe God is more like grammar, more like the laws of language, than what he is the author of your story. Can you see the difference? God being the author of your story means you have no creative contribution to make. God being the author of your story means that your decisions doesn't really matter. He's writing the story. <laughs> but if God is the laws of grammar, who in every moment invites you into possibilities of creating meaning, it means that you are a co-creator with God of the meaning of your life the meaning of your existence. It also means that God can be surprised <laughs> by the choices you make. God can enter into a relationship where the meaning your life unfolds gives him joy. See, joy and surprise are linked. You you, psychologists have proven this as well. You don't really experience joy if everything you experience was absolutely predictable before. Joy is experienced in moments of surprise, in moments where the experience exceeds expectation. <laughs> and so if God has joy, do you think God has joy? I <laughs> It means that he is also able to be surprised. <laughs> it means that he doesn't control and, and just 
gives you the impression that you're living your life, but he's already decided it all. It means like, that like a real parent who has dreams for their children, but has no idea what their life story is going to be like. God has dreams for your happiness and for your good, but God does not know what your life is going to turn out. We're still writing it together. He's, he's obviously with us saying this possibility is better than this. But even if you choose the wrong one, I've got some new possibilities that will take you in a beautiful direction. And even if you choose the wrong one, yeah, what's the best possibility in this horrible situation? It's this the one who never leaves us or forsakes us, but continually has a vision of beauty and goodness for your life. And in whatever context you find yourself, he's the one presenting those possibilities. Saying there's a way for us to aim at beauty and aim at goodness and for you to surprise me. And, and in the context of us experiencing the meaning of our lives, we enrich the experience of God. We... We contribute to God's enjoyment of his own existence. And so one of the controversial things that <laughs> Whitehead said, so I love it and God just say it again, is um, it's as true to say that God creates us as it is to say that you create God. <laughs> so so obviously that's You've got to get the context of that, but he was speaking in this context that the God who participates in your story and in your experience is continually growing in both his memory and his experience of this world. Because this one reality is where God is present this way. That must be the most revolutionary message of Jesus. That the true God is not the God out there. Mm. But the true God is the God whose thoughts, whose words become flesh. <laughs> and that didn't just happen in Jesus. That's happening now. In every blade of grass that chooses to absorb a certain mineral and grow in honor of the God who gave him that opportunity. The word is becoming flesh. And every insect that, um, that has before it possibilities of self-fulfillment, in choosing those possibilities, the, the word, is becoming flesh. Um, all of those experiences, whether it's the experience of an atom, a blade of grass, an insect, a bird, or of you, all those experiences are part of God's experience. And for me, this is so wonderful. When, when Jesus starts teaching about God, he often 
just starts referring to nature and to the beauty of nature. Look at look at the wildflowers. God is involved in what makes them beautiful. <laughs> God is involved in this in clothing. This is where I can see God in the beauty of all that exists. Jesus didn't lose himself in the world of ideas, in the world of hyper-spirituality, where he couldn't associate with that class of people or that class. He was often criticized for being too earthy, for sitting with the real people and having real conversations. And, and, and speaking about things that were so real instead of just heavenly ideas that separate from the earth. Of course, he spoke profound truth, but this profound truth always referred to it, it, the result was always enriching this reality. The result was never, oh, you must not endure this rotten world that we're in and wait for second coming. The result was always, this world's this story is amazing. And he, he chided, whenever he spoke about the futures and he spoke to the Pharisees, he said, you hypocrites, you know how to predict tomorrow, you know, the weather and this or whatever. But you fail to discern the moment. <laughs> I mean, how many people preaching about end times should go and read that verse? You're so obsessed about what's happening in the world and where we're going. And, and even as Christians, we get so obsessed with the afterlife. And that might be an important topic sometimes, but never let that become more important than discerning this present moment. God's here. This moment is valuable. This relationship has got value. This is what it's about. And when you discover that value, then the implications could flow over into other stuff. So tomorrow we're going to speak about some other qualities. We looked at experience and, and consciousness. We're going to look more at openness, freedom, possibility, and then at the process of creativity. And then that's in the morning and in the evening. We're going to summarize it all up again to say, so what does this mean about God? Who is God in this context? What is God in this context? And um, then, oh, then I think Sunday we'll just have a conversation. But even now, I just want to throw that open conversation. And, um, comments and questions and backing up for Sunday. Feel free, yes. So, you might say that God didn't have Jesus and to go to the resurrection. Hmm. Okay, so. It was also a surprise to him. Uh, he was waiting expectancy. Yes. So, that's a profound question. Did yeah. God know <laughs> that Jesus is going to go through with the whole process of the crucifixion? Now, there's an interesting parable that Jesus tells about a week or two before he gets crucified. He said the owner of a big uh, agricultural land 
gave this land over to Hyrus to work it for him. And then he sent one of his servants saying, give to the owner of the land the portion that is is um, in this relationship. The, the people who hired the land said, hey, let's take him, kill him, and keep the whole profit to ourselves. They did that. He did that again, the second time, sent the servant. They killed him again. Then God said, you know what, surely, if I send my son, they will listen to him. So this is quite amazing. The master's idea was that you listen to the son. And by listening to him, your mind shall transformed and changed and you give him what the portion and we enter into a right relationship. But they took the son as well and killed him. And so Jesus asked him, what should be done to them? And they are outraged. What the bunch of criminals. We should utterly destroy them. But kind of what I see in Jesus' parable is this idea that God has tried. He's tried different ways. He's sent prophets. He's sent messengers. He's sent people saying, can we work out another way of doing it? Can you come? Can we come to an understanding? But I think there's, even in Jesus' own awareness, there, in telling that parable just a week or two before he's crucified, I think that realization is set, setting within him. I don't think he knew that was, that was the outcome of his life. And even the night before his arrest, he prays and he says, Father, if it is possible to do it, do it another way. So in Jesus' mind, he also sees his father as a God of possibility. Somebody that has many ways of, get, of accomplishing what he needs to be accomplished. But in this case, there wasn't another way. And he went through with it. So... This actually opens up the question of God's omniscience. Shall I speak a bit about that? Yeah. 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 Can that capture any evil thoughts and his faithfulness and obedience um, is literally the way, the truth, and the life. And and so the fact that he said right at the beginning, um, you know, break, you know, tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. So mm-hmm. he's been prophesying about and boasting about the fact mm-hmm. that you know this body is going to be destroyed, mm-hmm. but it's going to be raised up again in three days' time. Mm-hmm. And so he knew what he had in the Father, and he knew the possibility of, you know, he had to pay, you know, he knew that one man would sin into the world and separate us from the Father. And so it was his mission to, to reconcile us back again. And, mm-hmm. and I think he was excited about reconciling us back again mm-hmm. to the ability of not having to try and keep laws ourselves and, and, and try and do things by what was the then only way that humans could possibly saw a, a freedom of, yes. of, 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 of guilt and shame by obeying laws, but, mm. but being in union. And so 
I mean, the possibility of union was always there through faith yeah. because some believed in Christ, yeah. the righteous blood of Abel, etc. But yeah, so I mean, it is possible that Jesus could have been unfaithful, but there wouldn't have been any good news in that. But the interesting thing about the, you, know, you know God's God knowing everything in the in the light of possibility, it means that God also knows that some things are not eternal. <laughs> so sometimes we think God knowing everything means He knows the future with absolute certainty, but. If God knows the future with absolute certainty, then you are not free to choose different things because either he has calculated all the influences already and know what you're going to do, or, you know, the first Thomas Aquinas who first proposed that basically said the future is as real for God as the past. So, again, you don't really have freedom to create the future. It's already set. So if God knows the future with absolute certainty, there is no possibility for freedom. There's just reality. Um, so what this proposes is that God knows everything that can be known. And that means he is, um, he is present in every entity experiencing what they're experiencing right now, knowing what they know, feeling what they feel. And, and with all that information, obviously God is able to predict and think and dream of the future more accurately than what I can with my limited experience. But still, there are possibilities that God knows are possibilities, not certainties. It's indeterminate. We'll see when we get there what my creatures do <laughs> to see where we go further. Yeah. yeah. Like, how, I also learned a lot about cycles and how we recycle our, our like certain patterns in our life. So what yes. we've learned, we recycle it. And so, yeah. and, and I don't know much about the Bible, but he said that he sent his son and then they, he got killed and then yeah. the next one got killed. And then Jesus yes. sacrificed himself. Yeah. What, what was the story then? I'm sorry, I didn't listen. Okay. But just, I just want to know, like, maybe every time there's a cycle that needs to be broken, God does know that there is always, like, that possibility. So you yes. won't keep trying. Yeah. Even in your life, you have to keep trying to break certain cycles that are keeping you where you yes. are. Yes. I don't know if that makes sense. It like, does. to break away from that yeah. and then change patterns to yeah. become to change the possibility or the yes. outcome because if you always focus, if you don't ever change your perception, then you'll never know a different outcome. Yes. Or if you don't yes. ask different yes. questions, yes. then your, your reality will still be the same. That's why yes. like a poor person will always get poorer because mm. they're always thinking of poverty and then a person who has wealth or wants to be very wealthy, they mm. think about possibilities of how to win more. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know, like if what I'm trying to say is like maybe that whole cycle that happened with uh, with Jesus, being, and, yeah, yeah, being born and then 
it is it is definitely exactly that 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 cycle within human history has often repeated itself when a community got into chaos they would often choose a scapegoat somebody that they can blame and kill for their own internal frustration and by killing them they would basically just you know divert or project their own inner frustration onto a scapegoat is not really guilty of their crime but it helps them feel better and and in a sense, that is how most civilizations got started. So all across the world, whether you look at pyramids in Egypt, the pyramid is the first sign of a, of a stoning of a person. It is the first place where the community took up stones, threw it until the person's gone and there's just a pyramid of stones. That is the beginning of the Egyptian civilization and the same kind of thing happened all over the world now Jesus comes and he actually in one of I think it's Matthew 23 he tells the religious leaders he says you're going to do to me what you've always done and that is when somebody speaks to you the truth that disrupts your comfort you're going to get rid of him. And actually, Jesus makes this shocking uh, announcement that it's not my death that's going to be unique. My death is going to be a repetition of something that has always happened. But I'm going to reveal to you things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. So he's basically saying, this time around, I'm going to interpret this event Different. Yeah, because previously the way people interpreted that event is we were in turmoil, we killed somebody, now we had peace. So God was on our side and he helped us deal with the guilty person. That was the interpretation. In Jesus, suddenly the interpretations turned on its head because Jesus represents God and basically he says, I'm not justifying your violence, I'm suffering. And you surrender to it. Mm. Yes, yes. And, and so he broke that cycle. It, it's beautiful in Genesis 1 as well. It's understanding of creation is this cycle of time. But it's not just a cycle, it's a spiral. Yes. So we do repeat certain things, but hopefully we're moving forward in it. That it's not just a rut. That we stay in the same circle, but that, that the circle is actually going somewhere. Right? And I think it's like to make sure that we always choose. Sometimes you won't always choose like the best choice, but you you try and keep in line with what is most pure, with and what is most loving, and what is yes. most like uh, something that's going to bring joy to everyone's life, not just yourself. And then sometimes we do, you may like make, you may do things that are not in line with that, but then yes. there's enough possibility of that outcome. You know, like you were saying, there's, yeah. it's not a good outcome, but then you change it and mm. you can always uh, uh, give it up to God and yeah. He yeah. does take it away and you 
Yeah. Yeah. Every day is a new day, and every minute. So beautiful. Yeah. Because we can so easily yeah, get. Into, yeah. <laughs> and so easily get into that place where we feel like our past is driving us into one direction, mm. and that idea that there's possibilities, yeah. that, this, that this day is truly new. That yes, my past has an influence, my environment has an influence. That there's another dimension of possibilities that's not linked to my past and that's not linked to my environment. And that in the midst of these influences, and this is another thing that we'll get into creativity, why could so beautifully uh, define this as, as pure potentials, which he saw as residing in the mind of God. So it's in every moment, it begins with God having a vision of beauty yeah. and goodness for your life. In that moment, and it's a pure potential in terms of it's unaffected by the past, by the environment, whatever. It's a vision of beauty. And then in the midst of your specific situation, which has many influences, he reinterprets that vision into a way that fits where you at. What is possible for you in this moment to move towards that beauty? And he presents you with that possibility. And this is where the beautiful thing comes in. Us being free can choose that possibility or we can choose the opposite. We can choose something really bad as well. And how he sees God's influence. God, God makes no decisions there. God's not involved in actualizing possibilities. We, we're the ones that make things real. God just makes it possible. And whatever we chose to actualize or to make real, God absorbs it into himself. Heals what can be healed, but basically reinterprets it in the light of his vision for beauty and goodness. So even if you've made the worst choice, he would put it in a context that brings out whatever beauty is possible for that decision. He works all things together for our good. And so he spoke of God as the poet of the world. That he's not the one who enforces his will or his design, but the one who takes your words, your meanings, your decisions, and poetically reinterprets it in line with a vision of beauty yeah. and goodness. Yeah, because sometimes yeah. like if you do end up doing things, like something that's not aligned with what mm. you should do or shouldn't do, it's like yes. you actually sometimes... It Nothing's lost. Yeah. Yeah. For folded yeah. purpose. Yeah. 
the theme for the weekend, but I think, Robin, what you touch on is is profound and so beautiful, because it does reinterpret the way in which we speak about God. So we, it might invalidate some of the ideas we have, but, but it also brings out some beautiful aspects of God that we might have known up to now as well. I think one of the things we can say is God is not the unmoved mover separate from creation, but rather God is the most moved mover. If God is present in every experience, if God experiences what every one of us experiences now, yes, he's not... He's not unmoved. He is the most moved mover there is. And um, I think what what this vision is going to open up is a God that is relational more than what we've ever imagined. So in, you know, in this vision of reality, the theologians that took that started speaking about God as one who is changeless. Because for Plato, the definition of perfection was something that is so complete that any change would make it inferior. But in this definition, where everything is a movement, perfection is more like beauty. There's no beautiful sunset that captures all that beauty is. There's always more to beauty than the beauty you currently experience. And so perfection is not a state. It is a movement of beauty. It's it's never something that is finished, static, complete. And so we can no longer speak of God as being changeless. We speak of God as this lure of beauty. And this is, you know, when, when this whole idea of when he started developing this philosophy, he didn't start as a theologian or wanting to bring God into the conversation. He actually tried his best not to. But what overwhelmed him in observing reality is that there was a trajectory within history. Gases didn't just stay gases. What lured the gases into forming planets and stars? What seduced our earth to bring forth life? What drew you know, life forward. Why why did the this one-celled creatures 
develop into multi-cell creatures. Why is it that history has a trajectory towards greater complexity, greater consciousness, greater diversity of life, greater beauty? I think that is what brought Whitehead to the place where he says, my word for the seduction of beauty is God. <laughs> Something draws your life forward. Something is seducing you to transcend yourself. And nothing in nature is just satisfied to be what it is. If it was, there would be no development. But this, this seduction to say, you're beautiful just as you are, but there's more possibilities than what you are. You're wonderful just the way you are, but there's also possibilities to be even more wonderful. <laughs> now that is God that's continually saying that. Transcend yourself. Realize these possibilities and you realizing it. I am becoming or I can be as God. <laughs> There's a part of God that would be missing without you. He's experiencing life Exactly, yeah. You supply something to the existence of God, just like God supplies something to your it existence. It's in your unique way that you yeah. can get in touch with yourself and God more, or you devote time to Him and to working and working through you. You actually allow yourself to become aware of your passions and your purpose. Yes. And when you go to a person, what are you going to leave them better? Are you going to yes. make that your energy away from them? Yes. Are you going to uplift them and be there for them and love them no matter where they are in their life yeah. or whatever yeah. their purpose is? I just feel like the biggest thing is to just have you know, as much love in your heart towards mm. whatever you do. Yes. Simple. So easy. And yes, we love fine fish. In your story, in your life, love finds an opportunity to express itself like, like nowhere else. And then also, like people, like you can, someone will see what you see, but they will never see it the way you see it. So you've always lived your life so differently. Like say your sibling, you've been brought up in the same house, but they've experienced life so differently to you. Yeah, that's why you never turn out the same, but you... Because there is freedom. Yes. There is possibility. Exactly. Yeah. So many possibilities for this soul and that soul, and those possibilities lead you to your faith and your possibilities. Yeah. Unlimited yeah. possibilities. You've got the beautiful song of that. I love possibilities. I'm actually really like the... One thing that, that, that really jumps out to me is that all of creation waits with eager anticipation for the revelation of the sons and daughters of Almighty. You know, for us to awaken in our oneness, for us to awaken in the fact that, that we belong all along, you know, that, yeah. that all the lies and stuff and the, the wrong thinking that we've had about ourselves just falls away by the wayside because 
Like, what was to be in harmony with it? Yeah. And so that already part of the song of life, but we're still struggling on with our heads down and not really seeing the bigger picture. Yeah. And so for me, it's an invitation into yeah. the sort of the dance and the joy mm. of, of being. Beautiful. You know, I just want to say mm. something too. In the beginning, anyway, what I wanted to say is, you know, in the beginning, when seeing God, moving in God, is like, you know, now you must start fixing things for you. Yeah. And the choices that you make, of all, all the things that actually happen to you, you are choosing yes. either by default or, or because you make no decision yes. and that's happening and you very fixing sort of orientated where the things happening as soon as possible and then a sort of second thing starts opening where these things that you've been telling this evening they just start opening up a window yourself to look out on God in a certain way and that brings a response from him and I love the way you say it's a confluence yeah. you know that our relationship Absolutely. is sort of like that yeah. and nothing is bridging yeah. and it's like discovering a mystery yes. like discovering his divinity and then yeah. seeing you find in your reflection of it as though you're looking in a glass some of the stuff that you've got, yes. and then you see that there's more and more, <laughs> and you know, it really does, as we say, Billy, it's like a dance, mm. you know, you were equally fascinated mm. by each other, oh, and the possibilities, you surprised by yeah. joy, I think of the title of that book, yeah. you know, and, and mm. it, it just goes on, yeah. this absolute beauty. And you find yourself going so beyond yourself sometimes that you don't recognize Love it. this new you. Love yes. it. Yeah. I just thought of this one as we were sharing tonight. And I was reminded again, writing it around the idea of where have you seen Narnia? Narnia or read the book. I was like, we're living in Narnia. And there's two beautiful scenes. So the one is where Lucy, where Aslan comes back after a while, and Lucy says, Aslan, you've grown, you know, you're bigger. And Aslan says, no, Lucy, you are bigger. No. He says, each year that you grow, you will find me to be bigger. And I thought it's so beautiful in the light of our ideas and the context or our concepts that the more we grow and hold these ideas lightly, as in a dance, you know, like holding a dance partner, Close enough to yes, and close enough to just oh exude the experience and enjoy this moment, but light enough to let them move and be free 
and grow and we will find God to be bigger, you yeah. know, with each year that we grow. And then the other scene is where she's with the fawn and Aslan's walking down the beach and she's like, oh, you know, why is he going? Why doesn't he yeah. stay? And the fawn says, he's not a tame lion. You know, sometimes we want to tame God through our ideas. We want to contain. Yes. And um, there was a, tw- a, a, a monk in the 1200s, Bonaventure, who said, God is an intelligible space whose center is everywhere. Yes. And Not whose circumference is nowhere. nowhere. I'm wow. exactly. He's within, but he's not confined. Mm-hmm. He's without, but he's not excluded. He is above, but he's not aloof. He's below, but he's not cast down. He simply is all in all. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? How can we measure the expanses of you? We try to contain you with our small point of view. But you are not tame. God, you are wild and free. Sweeping me off my feet into the wonder that is you. And hope soars in the faithfulness of love. Faith breathes in the spaciousness of your embrace. But not confined without, but not excluded. Above, but not aloof. Below, but not cast down. Holy God, you are. Below, but not cast down. 